Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. In the 1400s through the 1700s, global exploration and intercontinental travel made it possible, in some cases for the first time, for previously isolated species of grape varieties to breed with one another and create new hybrids, as we call them today. Then, in the late 1800s, the phylloxera epidemic led many nurseries to experiment with hybrids out of need rather than curiosity, leading to a massive growth in hybrid planting. This was followed by a massive backlash against hybrid plantings in a search for the purity of the past. Today we've mostly settled into a rhythm where we graft the scions of one species, Vitis vinifera, onto other rootstocks. We found an interesting solution to have purity of grape variety and rootstocks with sturdy genes that can withstand phylloxera. But the phylloxera epidemic nonetheless initiated an overarching conversation in the wine world. The conversation in which there are many sides and not always clear answers. If you've been paying attention to stem cell research and all the messy arguments in the media it stirs up, or if you've seen any of the sci-fi movies that explore what a world would be like if full of human clones, most of the thought-provoking issues revolve around notions of what we consider our self-evident fundamental rights as sentient beings. Independence, freedom, and the notion that a person's body is a sanct vessel for their unique soul. Cloning a human stirs up questions that we don't have answers to. If I'm cloned, do I share a psyche with my clone? Do I have any moral responsibility to this other person who is genetically identical? Do we become separate people? Does the soul split in two? Can the soul split in two? What moral responsibility do governing bodies have in controlling cloning? Could cloning accelerate natural selection? Cloning decelerate natural selection? Is it ethical to even interfere in this manner? It's a fascinating thing to ponder, especially in a world where human cloning is becoming more and more of a reality. But while these are hot topics in science today, Not many people focus on the results of cloning in other aspects of the natural world, including the world of viticulture. And with plants, it doesn't seem to ever be an argument about ethics. It's always about quality of product. Now, when I mention clones, I'm not referring to the normal language used in the wine world, where people discuss clones as being the subtleties of plant material that exist within a single variety of clone. These subtle differences between different genetically identical plants are usually confusingly called clones, for lack of a different terminology, while the term variety suffices to mean what is technically a clone. 
Now, the fundamental crux of the dialogue about viticultural cloning revolves around notions of purity. The undefinable notion of purity is associated with quality in most of our industry's dialogue about wine, so much so that it's become an unquestioned assumption in our conversations and writings. This notion of a pure genetic clone that is superior to other genetic clones carries through to other areas of horticulture, but not always to great results. Let's take a look at a few other industries where cloning is a major part of commerce and human consumption. We'll take a look at agave, apples, and grapes. In Jalisco, agave plants can propagate sexually, but if the flowering shoot forms, it takes nutrients from the agave's piña, or pineapple, and as a source of tequila, agave growers don't want the flowering shoot to go up because they want a large pineapple full of fermentable fructans to make high-quality tequila. So rather than allow sexual reproduction, most agaves are cloned by taking rhizomes they throw and planting new fields full of genetically identical material. Regional laws also restrict how agaves may be propagated. Genetically identical plants and fields mean that if one plant is susceptible to a disease or pest, they all are. And in the last three decades, we've seen three tequila blights, some causing the loss of up to 40% of some agave crops and causing tequila shortages and price fluctuations. Apples are usually cloned as well. The popular varieties of apples are all clones that have been grafted onto apple trunks with different DNA, and sometimes onto the trunks of completely different species of fruit trees. Sometimes you'll find an apple branch grafted onto a pear trunk. Ironically, Johnny Appleseed was considered odd for planting apple trees by seed rather than cloning and grafting. The nurseries he left in his wake were genetically diverse and the apple fruit was unpredictable. This was usually fine for cider making, but today the apples we find in grocery stores are usually just a few of the varieties available. With an orchard full of identical genetic material, a blight can wipe out an entire crop. The apple industry is currently struggling with fire blight, which has put gala apples in danger. Unfortunately, we've seen how clones of anything become more susceptible to disease or environmental disruption. When you take a living being out of evolutionary cycles, their line no longer has the capability to grow stronger through natural selection. Clones can adapt to a small extent, but not as efficiently as genetic adaptation. So what we end up with is something like Pinot, a grape variety that was born from seed possibly up to two millennia ago, when it survived in different climactic conditions, and the microorganism environment was drastically different than it is today. It's a grape from an ancient genetic strain that is practically incapable of growing in today's world without the assistance of grafting. There are exceptions, but most exceptions are threatened by the possibility that one day phylloxera will invade their soils. Some moon-rooted vineyards exist in soils where phylloxera can't grow, but they're still threatened by the possibility of a pest. Despite these fears, most wine growers would still never ever experiment with hybrids or even interspecies crossings. It's because the experimentation and the long period of trial and error to find worthwhile hybrids, this process will take centuries and rarely is someone willing to take the chance when it comes to the business that is bringing them their daily bread. Consumers don't want to take that much chance either. Instead, it's much safer to work with known quantities such as today's popular clones. And even with laws and rules to stay in your DO or your AOC, laws and rules that regulate what type of variety may go into this or that region's wines, most of the laws simply imply that just the scion must be that genetic material, with rootstock remaining mostly a choice. 
even within the strictest AOC laws, there is still room for genetic difference in rootstock. And this presents a, a quandary. It's almost contradictory for a law to require a specific genetic variety of grape when that grape is incapable of growing on that soil without a different rootstock. But I'm not passing personal judgment on our current vineyard genetics as good or bad. Clones are clearly an indispensable part of our industry, and I enjoy a glass of Pinot as much as the next guy. But I'm trying to shed light on something that we rarely talk about. Sometimes when I drink a wine made from a grape variety that has been cloned for centuries, and I find myself enjoying the so-called purity of what's in the glass, I ask myself, at what cost is this possible? If you take a larger view of horticulture outside the realm of winemaking and survey all plants, at what point does it become unethical for nurseries or governments or AOC boards to restrict plant material to a few clones in the name of purity and quality? It's possible that it only becomes unethical if some other blight on a phylloxera-like scale threatens our status quo. But in the meantime, is it right to ignore or restrict the infinite genetic possibilities that could exist through spontaneous fine reproduction? I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Evan Sadi on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. I'm. Uh, it's it's a sunshine day in New York, which is good. So you're the head of the Sadi family winery in the Swartland of South Africa. But how did you get there? You were doing we, a little bit of surfing. Yeah. Well, I love my surfing and I love my ocean, but um, I, I'm sort of the first in the line of uh, a new generation. I think wine is a generational thing and I was the first one to start with wine so I didn't have in your family yeah in my family there's no history there's no legacy that was passed down to me so in a way it comes with certain burdens but it also comes with certain freedom you know I've got a complete freedom in that I could become anybody that I want to 
and South Africa is a new, within the new world country and we've got a lot of things that's going our way and um, yeah, there's a lot of pioneering work to be done and I feel like a pioneer within my own family, within my own region and like every day is a new day for me and it's fantastic, it's been, it's been a good ride. But you first started releasing wines under your own label in 2000. Yes, 2000 was the first vintage, official vintage of the Saudi family wine. Before that, I worked for for other properties and I was employee at many companies and so forth. But, you know, it, it all came down to the point where I had such strong beliefs and convictions about wine that I couldn't work for other people anymore. You know, I had to, like, go on my own and... I was I was at the boundary of pushing down big stuff and and I couldn't do it within the in the model of a company in Excel spreadsheets and all of that. So uh, dispensation of time went past and it was just like everything was building up to 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 1999 and in 2000 I went on my own. Yes. What were those concerns that you had on your mind? For me. South Africa is obviously within the new world and the new world and the old world and it's this and that and wine's very we we're very categorical about wine and it's very defined and very rigid and wine's got a lot of structure and the wine world's got a lot of structure but I think that within the new world we've got a lot of things to to still do and achieve and overcome and we've got a lot of challenges coming our way in the new world and for me in the way the new world's kind of taken a backseat like we've we've set the sails and we've trimmed the sails and everything and we're sailing in, in in smooth waters but i think the new world's got so much more than we can bring to to the new world we sort of settled on six seven eight varieties we've got pretty much a monologue going on in the new world but the old world you gotta you gotta keep going back to the old world and i, I i've had the privilege to work for many years in europe in various countries and if you look at a lot of countries in Europe a lot of them has been have been developed and regions within Europe's been developed over a century two three four you know there's regions that's got two millennia behind them and they're still developing and I think in the new world we must never think that development's done um, there's a lot of things to to still happen in the new world and the grapes we grow today might not be the grapes that we're going to grow in another century or two. We got we got to keep on pushing to find out what's going to be the holy grail for each and every region. We can't live in South Africa, uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, South America, North America. You know, we're all planted essentially to seven varieties, and it just cannot be the notion. I I cannot believe that seven grapes could define five continents. It's not possible. And we, within the new world, we've got a lot of homework to do. Engagement with the old world is something I hear you talk about a lot. But at the same time, it sounds like finding what was going to work in your corner of the new world from that old world benchmark has been pretty much the project for the last decade and a half. What's happened along the way? What's happened is I think, you know, when when I returned, I pretty much, you know, I grew up in the new South Africa. So I grew up in the post, you know, in the post Mandela era. And I've been very privileged to be born in that time because I've only ever had freedom. I've never been constrained or constricted in anything. I've I've been able to be anything, do anything. 
I don't think everybody's got that privilege, and I don't think it's a privilege that's forever either. I just think that's where we are at this point in time in South Africa. And so, but with that also comes a certain responsibility in that I've got to do as much as I can, as long as it's going to go, to try and open up new things. And um, with that freedom is coming a country that's completely, it's it's just lying there, and it's it's... Yes, we've got established areas like Constantia. We've got established regions like Stellenbosch, which is probably the two regions every listener will know on your program. But I think there's a lot of areas in South Africa that we ourselves have got to like redefine. And in these areas that's already defined that we've got to like rework completely. And um, I think the biggest thing at this point in time is to plant the perfect grapes in the perfect sites and it's it, it's a daily daily thing it's an ongoing work that's got to happen and um, we can't just make another bottle of Chardonnay tomorrow that's not going to be it's not going to be South Africa and the old world was very important to me because I learned so much in old Europe and the idea is not to make a copy of Europe. We must make African wine in Africa. And we've got to make American wine in America. And we've got to make Australian wine in Australia. We should not make Burgundian wine in South Africa. And we shouldn't make Piemontese wine in, or Tuscan wine in California. We, we must make the wines that belong to our soils. And the only way we're going to do that is if we plant the right stuff in the right soils that can actually communicate our sites. So you're in the Swartland. And how should I understand that place? Swartland, if you translate it, means black land. There's various theories why the appellation might have got that name, but it's a very stretched out big piece of earth. They used to burn it at certain times of the year because of wheat growing, so that that black appearance in terms of the the burnt wheat lands. It was just burned to get the stubbles off the ground so that when to burn all the dry material so that you can actually get your plows and disking in. The other theory is that the natural forest or the natural growth of that area is growth which we call Renosterbos, which means rhino fields. And rhino fields are a type of a vegetation that in the summer months goes completely black. So if you came to Swatland 200 years ago, it would have been completely black in summer. If you, if you came in winter, it would have been green, but in summer the landscape completely turned black. So it's called the black land and... It's a big area. It's the biggest appellation in South Africa in circumference. It's uh, marked by three m- massive mountains. The first is the Porterberg Mountain in importance, I think the most important. The second one is the Ribeck Mountain, uh, the Castilberg. And the third mountain is Paketberg. And all around those three mountains, there's uh, so much dynamics going on. And it's a big area. It's a big, big area. And I've been out in this Appalachian since 1997. I was pretty much for 10 years feeling myself quite isolated on my own. But luckily in 2007, a lot of other individual great bright minds joined the Appalachian in terms of new projects, new beginnings. And today there's like amazing projects going down and people making amazing wines, incredible interpretations of what the place is and whatever. And I think the place is much more defined today, a decade later. And I think the next decade we'll get we'll get a better, even a greater mosaic going. There's lots of very small new producers coming online, micro, micro, absolute micro, like people making only 2,000, 3,000 bottles of wine. But every wine's relevant, you know, and every wine's got a story to tell. And 
I I just embrace every single person that's coming there and 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 giving their hand at at the appellation because having different individuals chipping out this block, we will might actually even get to carve this appellation into what it needs to be. On your own, you can't be an appellation. No man's an appellation ever. So three different mountains and a wide variety of acreage. Does that imply a lot of different soil types? There's incredible soil types. The diversity is enormous, but it's it's as diverse as it is, it's actually very well-defined. I've been to many countries and many regions, and you have like variations of things. The Swatland is extremely well-defined, like the Paderberg Mountains, all granite. So all the slopes, the entire Paderberg Mountain only speaks in one voice. So if you make wine on that mountain, it's one voice. If you go to the Rivier Castile, the Castileberg, it's only one voice. It's all slight soils. It's all completely true and original to that soil. And if you go to the Paquetteberg, it's all sandstone, decomposed sandstone formations. And then to the northwest side on the coastal plain, we've got the chalk soils. We've got on the northern edge of the Swatland of the Malmesbury, which is the capital of the Appalachian. We've got these um, deep red clay soils, which we it's very much similar to the Terra Rosas of the Barossa Valley. Um, we've got, we call it the Glen Rosa Ridge. There's these ridges of, it's about two miles by f- five miles, just deep red clay soils, super powerful soils. And if you go out to Darling, between Malmesbury and Darling, the next town, these all the alluvial soils, which is very similar to the soils that you might find in Bordeaux. So it's we've got definitely the we've got the stage, we've got the audience, we've got everything. We must just play the music. Um, everything's there. The Appalachians big. The climate's amazing. There's a lot of old vineyards. It's all unirrigated. We've got everything that you could possibly imagine that could possibly make up a great appellation. And I would like to think that we've got like the right people at the moment that's actually vinifying. Because unless you've got that, you've got nothing. And we've got good authors at the moment and they're writing good books. And the wines are, are telling stories that I like at the moment. And I really love all of my neighbors and what they're doing. But to take it a step back when you were kind of there on your own, the 2000 vintage of Columbia comes out and what was that experience like for you? Wow, that was that was like that's almost like you know when you get your first bicycle from your dad and you you get it with those nice little training wheels on that was like 2000 Columbia I just got this bicycle it had these two little training wheels on and then somebody took the training wheels off and that was 2000 was for me my first new bicycle without training wheels and I had to like I just had to get on and paddle it you know and it was an amazing wine I was lucky and fortunate and blessed and privileged and you could fill in a thousand words what happened what happened and what transpired but in a way I was just graced with that first wine in terms of it being a phenomenal wine it's not often that you start a new project a new wine a new everything and you release with a wine like that but it was the right wine in the right year, and people could say I was lucky, people could say this, that. I don't believe in luck. I think everything is in, in part destiny, and I, I felt that it was it, uh, that one was destined to put me on a certain trajectory, and I've been like following that trajectory. And um, it comes, with again, with responsibility. It's like, are you willing to take up the responsibility in the region, 
in a community in Appalachian to to carry the Appalachian. You you know, we all have our own egos and our own esteem and our own testosterone. I'm a man. I want to like show people what I can do and this and that. But the ego, all that stuff, you got to really get over that. And you got to like, you got to just rise bigger than that. And you got to put all that stuff behind because all that stuff will in, in, indefinitely be between you and the Appalachian coming to part. And for me, it's been hard, um, but it's it's been an amazing 15 years in that property, on that place, in that cellar, in the Appalachian, in the different vineyards and all the... We have a domain, so we don't have like all our vineyards in one place. They're all over the Appalachian. And it's just been for me an amazing journey to... I got to know the Appalachian, but I also got to know myself. So you came to some conclusions about the kind of wines you wanted to make in about 98. What were those thoughts at that time? Um, up to 1998, you know, we all go, I, I, you know, the the normal trajectory for any winemaker would be that you know, like grow up and you go to high school and then you get like this and that and you go to university and you study and you get your degree and you do it in wine physics or science and all of that. And um, science and wine is very linked, and especially in the last two decades, there's been a massive focus and shift on the winemaker, especially in the new world. In the old world, the focus is on the vineyard. In the new world, the focus is on the person. Um, and in the new world, we will, we build people. In the old world, we build places and vineyards. So within the new world, and America is not any indifference, South Africa not, and Australia for sure not, South America, New Zealand, doesn't matter. Any of the New World countries, the winemaker became very important in the 2000s. I would say from from the mid-90s, to be quite fair. And um, winemaking just became so important. And there was, I think we lost a little bit of the heart of what wine was in the mid-90s to 2000s. It's became all about technology and science and all of that. But great wine is born in something much deeper than science. It's a cultural activity you know and agriculture means it's a cultural activity in the land and you gotta if you don't exercise a culture in wine you're not making wine in my mind today wine is a cultural state it's a cultural degree of the land and if you're just processing and you all of that maybe you're making a beverage but you're not making wine it's a hardcore take on it but for me i had to like cut between the bone and the flesh and for me it's wine today is much more cultural exercise than anything else it's not a science anymore what did that mean for you in terms of the protocol for yourself my my lifestyle has been quite erratical you know i'm i'm not the perfect specimen i'm i'm quite a um i think in a person i'm i'm not i i swerve and i'm very much led by my emotions and stuff but i Something in my mind that's just stuck, you know, it's, it's this responsibility thing. You know, I, I weigh up to and I measure up to responsibility in certain things. And it doesn't matter where I was or what I was thinking or whatever. I just always knew from the outset that, you know, this is an amazing appellation. This is an amazing story to be told. And unless I'm very true to myself, I'm going to lose the story. And I always had to come back to the place and... For that, you you must actually, you, you need to get into a bathroom without your toothbrush, look in the mirror and say like, this is me, this is my ego, this is my testosterone, this is this, this is that. 
And this actually applies for all of this. There's only place ever for understanding your country, your language, your ancestry, all of that. You gotta, if, if you don't understand those things, you'll never understand wine. Wine, we can get all scientific and philosophical about wine, but in essence, it's, it's very much about people and it's about legacies and families. And I, I can just hope and, and I believe that my offspring and my future families will continue. And it, it's not so also that important that my son continue. You know, it's just that a person, a human being continue with the work. You think multi-generational is key? I, I think legacies and multi-generational is, it's the key to great wine. I don't think you make a great wine within one generation. A really great wine is, it's, it's a multi-generational project and, and it's, wine is not about ownership. It's about relationship. And I, I often say it to people, I know a lot of my customers, a lot of my consumers, a lot of my, I would say people that's actually paying my salary month to month. You know, I always say to them, you know, I appreciate the fact that you buy the wine, but don't buy the wine to own it. You know, wine's not about ownership. The fact that you own a bottle of wine doesn't mean anything. Unless you understand what's in your cellar and you actually have a, a relationship with that wine, you, you actually can never be the owner. An empty bottle of wine is much more worth than a full one. You know, I've got my house, my office is full of empty bottles. An empty bottle is so much significantly more worth than a full bottle because it means that there's been an experience, there's been a relationship, there's been an encounter. Yeah, I'm more impressed with guys that's got empty cellars than, than full cellars, to be quite honest. You were working at Charles Back. You were making the spice route wines for about four years. You started off in your own project. You started doing blended wines as opposed to monovarietal. Why did you make that choice? It's not very much a choice thing. A lot of my direction and orientation is, is based on facts or circumstance or whatever. I don't. I take a very analytical approach to things. If you look at whether wines is monovarietal or blends or one single thing, I think it's fair to say and you've got to generalize sometimes to get to certain answers. I mean, you can't, no great equation in the world's ever been written on exceptions. You've got to make up a rule and the rule of the world is that single varieties, monovarietal wine is made in the continent. So if you take like really cool climates like Germany, Austria, regions in France that's cold like Alsace, Burgundy, Loire, Central Spain, Rioja, Ribera del Duero, Piemont in Italy, Alto Aldige, Friuli, all those areas are very cool climate areas. And in those areas, because of the extremity of the climate and the site and whatever, a singular grape, one or two grapes, there might be two or three grapes that have excelled in those regions, and that's what that region focuses on. But that's been an organic selection of nature in terms of those grapes that perform in those areas. If you come down to the Mediterranean, which is much more the climate of the Swartland, if you look at the Mediterranean, and even Mediterranean France or Mediterranean Italy or Mediterranean Greece or whatever, all grapes grow in the Mediterranean. You can make Pinot Noir in the Mediterranean. You could make Grenache. You can make Sauvignon Blanc. You could make Riesling. In the, It's not to say that it's going to be great, but you can all grapes grow in the Mediterranean. So the Mediterranean's a much bigger salad bowl, and it's a, it's much more diverse. And, and 
almost with that comes a renewed responsibility and a renewed task because we got to figure out what actually really performs. In Burgundy, it's easy. You can't plant Grenache in Burgundy for it won't flower. You won't have a crop. It's such an easy equation to get to Pinot Noir. It's much more difficult to say that Grenache grows in this site because this is the best grape. So in the Mediterranean, we've got a much bigger task at hand in actually describing and describing the best grapes to the best sites. So it's a little bit more complicated in the Mediterranean simply because everything does grow. It would be much easier if some of our grapes actually defaulted completely or like fell out of the bus, but they don't. So there's much more selection to be done in the Mediterranean to actually find out what belongs. And South Africa is, for most, our climates are Mediterranean. You know, the entire Cape winelands, whether you are in Constantia, Stellenbosch, Swadland, Wellington, we're, we're very maritime and Mediterranean influenced. And if you look at the plant growth and everything, so it's it, there's no denying in what we are. We must just figure out what belongs. Have there been waves of planting in South Africa? Have there been times where something was in vogue and then maybe it shifted to something else that was in vogue and you see different ages of different styles of grapes? Yeah, I think I think fashion is very much, you know, wines, the, the wine fraternity has also got its fashion and if all, we also have hipsters and we've got geeksters and we've got everything. But I think it's fair to say that often people plant what sells at the moment or they make a decision made on a consumer profile or consumer index or whatever it's not just a south african thing it's a new world thing that often just we take the option that sells i think much more careful thinking needs to be done in terms of just planting the right stuff and making real wine it's very difficult to sell a bottle of agrigitico or zamanvaro or Acertico or Greco, it's much more easier to sell a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay or Merlot for that matter. But it just because it's easy doesn't make it right. And it's only the, the people that's peered hard and that like stick out with their guns over time that's actually going to make the real wines in the real areas with a real interpretation. And I, I hope, and I think wines, the one thing I've learned about wine, it's very fair and it's very real and it's very honest. And it will cut down to the truth in the end. And I believe the truth will prevail. And wine in itself is a it's a it's a purifier. It's it's one of the most incredible beverages on the planet. It's so truthful. And you could live in a lie, you can make a lie, but we all every anybody that's been long enough in wine will know how long the lie lives. It lives for about a decade and then it goes. The truth in wine just lasts for legacies, generations. Three weeks ago, and I've said this yesterday, I drank a bottle of Comme de Vaugway and it was an amazing bottle of wine. And I went home the evening. And I got home and I've got these two amazing books on Burgundy. They're on my um, bedside table. And I took out this one book and I, I was like paging up. And I got it's got a very nice entry on Comme de Vaugway. And um, our 20 generations, one family, one wine, one site. I mean, this that's a legacy. That's a story. And often people say wine's too expensive and it's this and that. What is the value of a singular family protecting and, and, and being the custodian of a piece of earth for 20 generations? There's no price on that. You know, whether you spend $20, $200, $2,000, you can't actually quantify the measure of that family. 
it's amazing. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I mean, when you sit with a bottle of wine in that, like that in your house or in your home, or if you're privileged enough to, to drink it, yes, there's the wine in the glass, but there's a lot more emotions going around and about. And I believe all of it's in the wine. Whether you can taste it or not, it's only going to depend whether you're equipped or not to taste it. And the only way you're going to get equipped in the world of wine is by drinking wine. You've got to drink a lot of wine to know wine. I've drunk so many bottles of wine and every single bottle of wine I've drunk, not one was wasted because every bottle of wine I've drunk has equipped me better, you know, to taste better, drink better, interpret better. So actually what I want to say is just drink as much as you can and you'll get to the truth very soon. In terms of your own wines, when I taste the Calamello 2000 versus the 2001, it seems like there's a big difference between those two wines, even at this length of time. Are there differences in, in how they were produced? Yes, I, um, I, I, I think people, often people th- say that I move very fast and I'm, you know, you're the foreground of things and people think this and that and whatever. But in, essentially, I move actually quite slow in my own mind. The first decade, the first 10 years, I might call them out just one way. I just wanted to learn about myself and about the soil and the climate of what is the Swatland about. And then when I hit the 10-year mark, when we sort of ticked the first decade, I said, let's take a 10-year review. And I reviewed the Kulamala over 10 years. And I felt that at that stage, the Kulamala was a 24-month aging in barracks. Um, it was a full, full two-year cycle. And this, that's a long discussion in its own why two years, not 18 months or 14 months. But two years was... It was for sure that was the right direction. But I felt that the wine sort of got tired at 18 months in the cask. Between 18 months and 22 months, I felt that some, a little bit of the inner, inner depth soul of the wine got lost. And I was always like bothered by it. And, it, and that bothering like lingered in me for two, three years. And in 2009, I just said, we've got to make our first change. We've got to like say, we've got to come out with a statement here and say something. And the statement was like, yes, the vinification's been in my mind always been right, but the aging, you know, it needed to get reviewed. And we, as opposed to aging the wine for 24 months in barrels, we said, we're going to do 12 months in barrels. And essentially it's because to keep all the small parcels apart and analyze them and assess them and whatever. And then at 12 months, we will rack them off into some big wooden fooders, old big casks that couldn't add any taste or whatever but it's it's much more reductive vessels and it's vessels that actually preserve the wine much more so the first 12 months of the kulamella aging is a it's a development and the next 12 months is a preservative and um i must say ever since that change 9 10 11 and 12 of the kulamella is like in my mind spot on to what it's what I wanted to produce already in 2000. I just didn't have the keys to know how to do it. And we sort of had to sit through the first 10 years of, um, we had to live it in our skin and our flesh to to, ha- to grow to that point where we could actually analyze it and, and live through it and measure it today where we could say this has definitely been a better move. And in 10 years, I might make another move, but nothing in terms of what we do happens quicker than in 10-year phases. So 
Fudra would be more reductive than barrel because the well, why? Because the wood is different. Um, Fudra is a French term. It means basically a big wooden cask. It could be cylindrical, it could be oval, it could be conical, it could be any shape. But it usually, uh, in the French language, ascribes a vessel, a big wooden cask vessel. Um, and what happens is, in a barrel, you've got 225 liters of wine. And if you actually measure the out, outer surface area of a barrel, it's actually a big contact area to the wine volume, surface to surface. If you put wine in a 5,000, if you, if you amplify it 20%, your surface area actually goes down. So the contact that the wine actually has with the wood decreases. That's the first thing that happens. So much less of the wine is in contact with the exchange. And then secondary, what happens is when a, a normal wooden cask would be like almost an inch thick and a footer is three inches about, just, just short of three inches. So you could effectively say, although it's a 300% multiplication in wine, it doesn't quite pan out like that. A footer almost breathes 10 times slower than a barrel. So what you're doing is you're just slowing down the breathing of the wine. So the wine just evolves much slower. It's running a race at a much slower rate. It's a, between people running the 400 meters and running a 10,000 meter race or mile or whatever it is. It's a different type of breathing. And I think to produce wines that age, you need wines that breathe slow. And you got to breathe. In my region, being Mediterranean, we got to slow down the breathing. So you're saying, in order for wines from your area, which is a bit warmer and perhaps with less diurnal what you need is less air to preserve freshness in the finished wine uh, absolutely our wines in essence get born of age they they mature when they get born i don't know if you watched the movie uh, i'm not a big movie guy and i don't have a tv and all of that stuff but occasionally i get on the plane and i watch the movie but there's there's this movie the strange case of benjamin button oh yeah sure and i i think our wines is a little bit like Benjamin Buttons. You know, they almost get born of age and we got to figure out how we turn them into youth. Um, there's other regions that's the complete inverse, but we, our region's a Benjamin Button region. And uh, we, we need to figure out how we're going to go from getting born of age and actually going back to our youth in our wines. And it's, it's, I've put so much time into this and energy, you have no idea. I mean, it's been the singular focus of my life for the last 15 years. Is you mean free. meeting Kate Blanchett? That? Uh, keeping? <laughs> meeting Kate Blanchett has been the singular yeah, focus. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that in part, but yeah, just how, how, how are we going to get to this point? Because it's the complete, it's the most unnatural thing is the we're not Benjamin Buttons. Nobody gets born of age. So our mind, our mind always moves from youth into age, not from age into youth. And um, it's the most abnormal, unnatural direction to have gone. But luckily, I met a lot of the right people in the right time, and I drank the right wines in the right places with the right people, and things happened. And my answers I didn't get in chemistry books. I got it by physically human-to-human -human contact. Wine, a lot of wine's answers is in humans. It's not in science. And, and you you got to put yourself out there and you must open yourself up to other people and their opinions. And Who have some of those people been for you? 
there's so many. I mean, I actually value even having spent time with you during this interview and before just walking up here. You know, I I take I take energy from every discussion I've got. I don't pin things down. I think we can learn everything every day and every second. It's just how receptive you are. You know, I think. But to be back to your question, it's it's a lot of the answers is within the old world and we cannot in the new world sit and think that we we got to do that homage back to the old world you've we've got all every single producer has to spend time in the old world you've got to go do the track there and then you can come home and you can come and run your own race but within burgundy within piemont within the mosel within even Austria, Austria is amazing. I mean, they've just got such a great story and such a great, just amazing things. They've they've in also just in the last three, four decades, what they've overcome and been and whatever. It's just you, you got to do the time on the track. There's no no ways about it. And and know your producers, know the people that you should be should be visiting, and know the people that you should be talking to. And the only way you're going to know is you got to drink again. Drink as much wine, speak to as much people as you can, and don't be. I think you should not be oblivious to the fact that you might be wrong at any point. Like even me sitting here now, everything I've said, I believe it. But I also am candid enough to think that maybe my my theories and stuff's not watertight. I'll, I'll put them all to pressure tests. Everything I've said today is not watertight. I mean, there's some of the philosophy, policy interpretation whatever you want to say you know it's it's all under scrutiny you know it's it's ongoing i just scrutinize it over and over and over because i could be wrong i could honestly be wrong and if i'm wrong i want to know that you know i and i'm happy to live also with a wrong um you, you don't need to win all the time i've learned as much from the great wines we've made in our last 15 years as I've learned from the wines that's not been on target the more mistakes you make the, the faster you're going to grow you, it's just and I've got amazing consumers you know I've got people that's following me even if I make mistakes I, I, and in all honesty those are the real great people out there it's the guy that buys my bottle of wine regardless of vintage I've got guys that buys our wine they would buy the next 10 vintages without having tasted them I mean, those are the real heroes. It's people that's like, I'm going to like blindfold it. I'm going to follow this guy. And again, it comes with responsibility. It comes with serious measure. It comes with a lot of things. But those are the real, if you want to say the real winemakers of the world, is the consumer that takes a serious punt and a serious position on a producer. There's, there's no greater thing out there. I can't drink every bottle of wine I've produced. And I certainly need to sell nine out of 12 bottles of wine I've got to sell. To have an income, to be able to do this next year again, to be able to have the privilege to have another harvest, and I cannot thank enough the people that buy my wine. I cannot do it. But it would probably be more difficult for you if it was like a fifteen thousand case production every year. I mean, you're sub five thousand. So. Yeah, it's yes. I think it's the fact that we're small helps. You know, we produce four thousand cases of wine. It's capped. If the world wants. 10,000 cases, I'm sorry, I'm only going to produce 4,000 because that's the level where my mind works. That's the level where I feel in control and that's the level where everything makes sense to me. My bookkeepers might think different. My, yeah, 
but I've got also my internal family supporting me and um, whether it's my sister my brother you know the, when I started I started on my own but my family sort of latched on through time because I needed I needed people I needed people to help me but the, the dream was so big that I couldn't I couldn't dream it out I needed people and I've got Beverly my accountant and Christine that does my national sales and I've got Paul my assistant and I've got the guys in the cellar like Jerry and Brian and all those guys, you know, it's, we've got a horizontal company, you know, there's no power games, there's nothing. You earn your respect in the company and everybody's got the same vote. And I'm happy to be outvoted in my own company if it needs to be because it's not a, it's, it's not a dictatorship and I've learned so much about just not just wine. I've, it's it's been a great journey, you know, to start a company from nothing, a wine business, um, making the wines, procuring the vineyards, working the vineyards, refining the vineyards, restoring the soils, the wines, the consumer, trying to get everything together. There's a lot of balls in the air, and I've, there's times where I got to bed and I've uh, it felt like I, I've woken up with hangovers, not having had gone and have had a drink you know it's it's some days are heavy but you know there's the moment i crossed 40 things became easier you know i'm now post 40 and it's fantastic to be over 40 things are just clear my brain's clear my mind everything it's just easier now i know things i'm not going to make the same mistakes again and i don't need to rewrite the same tests and there's a lot that I've still got to do within my lifetime, you know, and then I've got to learn also to give the baton over at the right time. I'm not this dictator that's going to sit there till the dust is on my flag behind my office. I'm going to kick out early. I'm not going to kick out late. I might do something else. I might just go surfing. I don't know, but I'm not going to hang around for the dust. Um, I've got a time. I've come. I'm going to do it and I'm going to kick out. I've heard you make references to Gerard Gobi and Aroussian in relation to your own wines and the parallels there. Do you think that there's some connection between what he's doing in France and what you're doing in South Africa? Yes, I I, I, I think Gerard um, is a, is, he's still a better grower than I am. I've got a lot. I wouldn't have the audacity to say that, you know, I'm in the same league or whatever, but he's a great grower. He's one of the greatest growers I've met. Him, Thierry Allemand, met a small guy with a tiny domain in Le Tour de France, Cyril Fall. You meet these guys sporadic throughout time and don't make a mistake, there's a there's a horde of great growers in Burgundy. It's just I could I could speak as much as I want to Meunier or Fourier or Amor Rousseau. But you know, it's interesting dialogues and it's dialogues about wine. But when I speak to Gerard Gobi, we share the climate. We have the same climate, we have the same soil. So when he says things, I listen differently from standing in the continent and drinking Burgundy. So you can't always produce what you, you know, my, I, I love Burgundy, but I'm not making Burgundy. I'm living in the middle of a Mediterranean area growing Mediterranean grapes and I must listen to Mediterranean people and Gerard Gobi is definitely one of the strongest proponents you know and I think and Remy Padrino in Rock Danglade is not any different you know he's a he's an exceptional grower he's an exceptional grower exceptional winemaker um, but Gerard and uh, Lionel 
and they and Gerard's wife Gislin. I mean, they are incredible growers, you know. And his brother-in-law Thomas, who, who worked with me at Domaine Matassa, not any lesser. I mean, Thomas makes amazing wines, and these are the kind of people that I, you know, when they say things, I take it to heart because it's not only crystallized, but it's also relevant to my area. Our area is very similar to like parts of Sicily. So I, I spend a lot of time in Sicily, southern Sicily. If you look at like Ariano, Kipinti, Vittoria, that's the kind of climate. If you look at Tenuto de Terra Negre, you know, Marco de Gracia, and even Frank Cornelison making like his wines and his amphoras and whatever. It's it's all the same climate. It's different interpretations, it's different philosophies and whatever, but it's very good to travel around the globe and see people make wine in the same climate. Uh, south of Spain, southern Italy. I mean, there's a horde of places that I still, and amazing places I still haven't visited. You know, um, on my bucket list definitely is to to go down to Ampulia, Cantabaria, you know, all that southern parts of Italy because within all that Aglianico, Negra Amaro, all that stuff, there's some, there's some truth hidden in what they've been doing. It's... And they've been doing it for two, three thousand years. So it's my, it's it's worth flying down to Napoli, getting a car, and driving down and taste the wine, speak to the people. You might learn something, you might learn nothing. But for me to go to Bordeaux and taste Bordeaux blends and whatever, it's fantastic. But it's it's not going to bring relevance to what I'm doing. So my my the airports I go to these days are slightly different from the airports I used to go to a decade or two ago. But the locations you mentioned are often famous for red wine. You also make some white. How has that journey been for you? <sighs> white wine in the Mediterranean is it's the Achilles of everything. You know, it's the greatest wines on the planet's whites. Um, the fact that we have an inability. To acknowledge that is it's a human it's a human fault. Some of the greatest ones on the planet's white. We just never give white the the I would say the stage. And to make wine in the Mediterranean is even a bigger challenge because we don't have the acidity, we don't have the tannin, we don't have the fruit, we don't have the slow ripening, we don't have the complexity, everything. So the whites in, to make a great white in the Mediterranean is it's a challenge. It's a true challenge, you know. But I only had to taste like a couple of great Mediterranean whites, and then I realized it's possible. For me, white wine was always Loire, white Burgundy, Riesling, and Kuhnewald Lieder from the Bachau. That is where my and I didn't drink other white wine. That was for me white wine. Everything else was like okay, so it's nice having. It's like interesting, but then. I started tasting wines out of the Mediterranean, you know, and, and even just looking at the different interpretations. And again, coming back to the Roussillon, if you look at the white wines that Gerard Gobi is making, the white wines of Remy Pedrino, if you look at the white wines even of Master Master and Gassac, uh, the white wines of Domaine Matassa, I mean, those wines, they're incredible. They, they sacrifice Mediterranean white, sacrifice fruit, but they've everything they lose on fruit they make up in texture, and it's a great playoff. Continental whites might have the aromatic edge; it might have a lot of things, but texturally, Mediterranean white wines, 
like top of the list. But there'll never be a lot of them and there won't be like many takers either because people sort of have labeled white wine as cool climate thing, as a cool climate entity. But if you can make a good white wine in the Mediterranean, it's a huge achievement. Huge. Much more than the red. Much more. Your own project, Palladius, which is your white blend, has seen some refinements and changes over the years. What brought you to those conclusions? Was it finding different parcels? Was it coming to different ideas about how you wanted to do elevage? What happened? It's a deal. It's a complete deal. Definitely the, the cepages have changed, the varieties. It started off as a Chenin, Viognier, um, Grenache blend at that stage with a bit of Chardonnay. It was the first plane of its kind in our country, so it, you know the eyebrows sort of rose at that time. But that was just the start. It was just a takeoff point. I, I soon realized that Viognier was too ripe and too alcoholic and too blase. You know, it was like blase and too viscous and too sweet. So I had to like X out the Viognier. And then at the same time, I was working with Old Vine, Grenache uh, Blanc, and Old Vine Claret, and Old Vine Semio Blanc, Semio Gris, Old Vine Palomino. I was working with with Verdello, and I, I was starting to work with like grapes I've never like looked at as superior grapes. But when a vineyard's 50, 60 years old, and it's an Old Vine vineyard, it's planted in an amazing site. I mean, there's no ways you're not going to have the building blocks of great wine so today the Palladius is a complete different blend it's today 10 varieties it's a blend of Chenin Blanc Grenache Blanc Marsan Rousson Viognier Semio Blanc Semio Gris Claret Palomino Verdello so it's uh, it's 10 grapes today in one bottle and it's not it's not schizophrenia or anything it's just those are the grapes that really excel in those different sites and if you want to bottle a wine that resembles the Swatland, it's all of those sites need to be in that bottle and all those varieties are part of the demography of what our Appalachian's about. So it's kind of nobody stays behind, you know. It's it, Arguably, I'm not I'm not having my percentage of Chenin Blancs much more than the percentage of Viognier because Chenin Blancs much more relevant to my Appalachian than Viognier. But I still include Viognier because it's a recognized grape in our Appalachian. So you got to, it can be kind of demographic you, it's it's democracy, but it's not a perfect democracy where you could like almost choose, you know, who's the statesman and who's going to have a vote. But I very much like where the Palladies is at this point in time, and I love the wine. I'm completely in love with one of my own wines, and it's amazing. It seems like over time you became more and more aware of older vine parcels in your own region, where maybe you had started with some younger vine material to make your wines, and then you became aware perhaps through help of others or through your own research or just traveling around that there were these parcels in your neighborhood. How did that process actually happen for you? I was always aware of old vineyards and I i mean, I ended up almost a decade in Spain because of my love of old vineyards. And But sometimes you don't see other people's stuff and other cultures are always more attractive than your own. I was a... I was a victim of that where I thought that everything else other than South African was always better. And uh, I kind of believed that and I lived that for a good 15 years. And it was only sort of by the end of 2008 that I realized I came back home. And I, I, that's also the same time I picked up adversity to wood and wine. And 
I had also renewed issues on alcohol, you know, high alcohol and wine and everything. Like a lot of things happened in 2008 to me and uh, I was building up more and more like resentment to wood and alcohol and everything. And then also that year, that same year, I sort of realized like, hang on, I've been flying all over the globe. I've been living in all these sneezy, slazzy places, you know, sleeping on couches and benches for all these years. And yet my own country is just sown with all these amazing old vineyards. And I came home and I'm and, and that was basically the birth of the old vine series. Um that that same year a good friend of mine of America came down to do the harvest with me and we had lots of discussions about old vineyards and old wine and whatever and he he actually played a small little significant part in in just messling in the last little bit of detail you know he, he just said even you're doing a lot of other stuff but just just focus on this this is this is a good enough story to just be the story to do that, the old vines to do the old vine series yeah and i i was like doing the old vine series on the side and he was like no dude um you, you're taking a wrong approach about this you missed this is a focal point you need to focus on this this is a good enough story and um and that was tegan that was tegan uh, he's He's working up in, in Napa, he's with Turley Vineyards and he does his own project and uh, it was good. Tegan was a, he's, he's a good friend and, you know, he's good advice and he's he's like a person, uh, you know, I'll, anything he says to me I'll always take very serious because he's not, his thoughts are also distilled thoughts. So I really took what he said and yeah, in a way you could say it's kind of, it's kind of weird because yeah, I'm sitting in New York having this interview and... Tegan sitting over in California and then the old vine series has developed now almost uh, five years since I've seen Tegan. I'll see him in two weeks time. So it's like, it's again the build up of a lot of things happening here. There's a lot of stuff in the sky at the moment happening here and I'm, I'm looking very forward to seeing my friend again. So the old vine series is sometimes single varietal, sometimes parcel blends, African names and in general old vines and and what do you have in that series? Um, the old vine series is it's it's a it's a it's a mono like the French call them monopoles. So it's it's single vineyard bottlings. So if a vineyard is in itself a single vineyard and a single varietal, then it will be a single varietal wine. But some of these vineyards, especially all the vineyards that's older than eighty years, in the majority of cases are co-planted pre nineteen. 30 almost all vineyards were like just co-plantations of whatever they could get their hands on to plant plant material was scarce and often a vineyard would have been four or five varieties so all the vineyards that pre date 1930 that we use they all field blends and we pick them as they come out of the vineyard and the blends made in the vineyard as it comes out of the field and then all the vineyards that sort of 70 years and younger, they are in the majority of cases 98% pure and 100 in some instances. So they are bottlings of the site. It's not about the appellation yeah. it's not about a region, it's not about anything, it's just about one place. But I think if a vineyard's grown 80, 90, 100 years in a place, it's got a story to tell and the story is worthy enough to bottle on its own. Do you find that some of those vineyards are in maybe danger of getting ripped up? Mm, there's a lot of great old vineyards getting ripped up, not only in South Africa and France and Spain and the whole world. I wish the world would take a position on old vineyards, but, you know, there's 
people only get serious about things that's involving a lot of money and there's not enough money in old vineyards and all of that so unfortunately a lot of old vineyards all around the globe is getting ripped up including my Appalachian and it's a it's a tragedy because a vineyard that's 80 years old you could rip it up and plant a new vineyard tomorrow but to get a vi- that vineyard that newly planted vineyard to have that same um, equilibrium between vigor everything it's gonna you're gonna have to wait 30 40 years you know and Time's the most expensive thing on the planet. Even if you've got a lot of money, you can't buy time. So it's uh, for me, time's everything. Every, everything on the planet. And that's why I use every second myself. But I mean, you can't, you can't buy time. You could be the wealthiest guy in the world. You could be world number one in terms of the scoreboard, in terms of income. You can't plant an old vineyard. You could land a plane on, on the moon if you wanted to, if that was really your gig. But an old vineyard, unless somebody left it to you, you're not going to have it in your lifetime. So it's, and, and to rip up a vineyard, it takes a morning. One bulldozer, one morning, done. You could undo 40, 50 years of white in a morning. Just one stupid, stupid decision. Every old vineyard is not a great old vineyard. It's got to be said that there's a lot of old vineyards that's not good. But unfortunately, a lot of very good old vineyards is getting ripped up. And it's not just in my country, it's all over. So before you focus more exclusively on the Old Vine Project, you were working in Spain and you were working in the Priorat. And what was that experience like for you? For me, Priorat was very important because it was a cultural experience for me. Living, uh, you could be a tourist forever, but it's only when you own land and you own, you actually have activity day to night running that you actually can breathe and be in a place so after all my years in europe it was just natural that i should do a project in europe and the project happened to have happened in spain in priorato and priorato was a good it was the best 12 years of my life that's all i can say and i've learned a lot it was my base in europe i moved from priorato from priorato i would could do the high speed trains into any anywhere anywhere my partner Dominic and I we flew to so many places we saw so many things it was a beautiful time in my life um, but it's over I'm I grew like at the same time 2009 a lot of things happened in 2000 end of 2008 2009 I also realized I'm an African I want to go back to my country and I want to live in my country and you know what if you want to make a wine you got to you got to be there when the... I'm there now. For the last five years, I've been in every vineyard when it's budded, when it's flowered, when it's been green pruned, when it's been trimmed, when it's been plowed. It's not up for sale, that experience. And that experience is transcending into the wine because that's the information that I need to make decisions on the wines we're doing. And, and yeah, um there's no ways I'll change the lifestyle that I'm living at the moment and I love being at home and you have kids now I have three kids um, luckily they've they've got a I'm kind of a I'm just so grateful they've got a good mother because I've <laughs> mother makes up for my behavior and all everything that I've been but they've got a good mom they're great kids and um, at least, uh, you know, my sons are 16 and 14 and both of them wants to go and to wine. They're already 
in boarding school and agricultural school and the ones already started with wine school at 16. Um, so, you see, there's no pressure. They could become painters, they could become graffiti artists. I actually couldn't care. They must just love what they do and I'll be 100% behind them. But my sons love the farm. That's the last five years every weekend in the harvest they've been with me I sometimes even go pick them up on the way from school I pick them up if I go gotta go get one more load of grapes or I've gotta go take picking grapes up three hours drive sometimes some of these vineyards I stop at home I'm like call them on their phone and I'm like Marcus do you want to drive with he's like yes dad I'll drive with and you know you've got a three hour drive with your son and you talk about him his school his mates talk about girls you know, it's that's the kind of stuff that you can't. That's why I can't be anywhere else anymore but home. I must be home, and um, I think my sons are going to make great wine. I honestly think that, and I um, I'm happy to walk the moment they feel that they can take it. The moment my son comes to me and says, "Dad, I I, I can take this weight. I'm I'm out of there. I'm so out of there. Um, I'll still work." I'll reapply the next day for a job. I'll just look. I'll just work in the vineyards or whatever. But um, the, uh, there doesn't need to be a divided power in the cellar. If uh, a wine is a direction, it's a philosophy and everything, and there's one man that must direct it. These wines that's made by teams, for me, they often taste like teamwork. You know, it's like this. It's, it comes down to average. The real great wines of the world are singular determinations so do you see a potential of two estates in the future for the Saudi family it's on the cards um, I've started um, I've got a backup plan in place um, I've started planting a, a couple of new properties a couple of new sites um, I've got a property that I would like to buy um, as just the investment for the future um, we might sell those grapes we might grow we might build the cellar if my second son decides he's also pulling it through, then obviously it's got to happen. You know, and if my daughter, then we got to do a third one. You know, it's like, I can't even think of doing a third one, but you know, she's, she's like serious and she wants to do it. Why not? Let's do it. Let's, 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 let's get it on. But every story will be a new story. We don't do clones of things. We're not doing another Saudi family. This is, home base will go to my oldest son. It's just the way our inheritance works and um my my second son will get a you'll get a proper gig as well to play and my daughter as well and um oh, it's it's almost unimaginable to think that there might be one day three domains or whatever but at the moment i'm we're just trying to get this one right and have you been planning varieties that you talked about from other regions like calabria or greece have you been doing plannings of Mediterranean we right? we we planting over the next uh, eight years. We're planting forty new varietals um, from Agrigitigo, Zemanvaro, Tresadura, Fiano, Albarino, Assertico, uh, Greco. You know, we're planting like so many unknown and unsung heroes of the. Mediterranean, but grapes that I truly believe could add to the to the mosaic, and uh, I think they grapes that's gonna some of them 
we'll have to pull out and root up and pull out and say this was a mistake. But again, I said to Paul, my assistant this week, the more graves we uproot, the closer we're going to get to the answer in our lifetime. Otherwise, we're not going to get to any resolve. And even if we even if we plant the grapes now, we're busy planting them now. Um, this is now, we're down 2014. I'm going to make the first wines of any relevance by 2020. You know, and then it's from Young Vineyard. So we'll only really have the answers by 2040. You know, in 2040, I'm pretty much, I've got to be realistic about it. It's time for me to kick out. Um so we've got a, we've got a lot of work, but that work doesn't need to just resign to our property. It needs to happen in California. It needs to happen in the Barossa. It needs to happen in McLaren Vale. It needs to happen in uh, Margaret River. It needs to happen in Santa Barbara. It needs to happen all over the world because we in the new world we haven't we haven't touched that aspect of of wine. We're making another bottle of Chardonnay, and it's all noble and it's all good, and it's maybe got a a positioning on a wine list and it's got a category in a wine directory but that's not the reason why we make wine we must make wines that define places and Chardonnay can define certain sites but it can't define everything uh, Chardonnay does well on chalk it does well on cool climates and this and that but the new world's got a lot of other sites and um, Chardonnay can't be the answer to the new world nor Sauvignon Blanc nor Merlot Planting different grape varieties to different soils, but are you also working those soils differently? Yes, we we've got seven main major soil types, and when I got to the area, we we started with like a pretty standard viticultural program, but it's getting refined more and more. And um, this year is actually my biggest year of transition. Um, winter fourteen going into spring fifteen is my biggest year ever. In terms of working the soil, new implements, new plows, discs, hose. We basically gone and we categorized the seven soils and we're really trying to find the perfect cultivation program for every soil. So like the plows we use in the granite, we're not using in the slate soils and because they have different requirements. And um, I feel like the, my first day at school again. You know, it's like so much that we'll know in a year's time it's going to be a good year to this year and with the elevage so a variety of different fermentation vessels usually basket press for reds no added acid and not much sulfur yes we obviously with my 2008 build up um, and movement away from wood and extraction all those things also came at the same time, you know, we work a lot with concrete tanks. We work with old wooden casks and we work with clay amphoras. Um, our clay amphoras, we, we bake at very high temperatures deliberately because we don't want the oxygen to flow too fast. Uh, my criticism to some of the amphora wines is that they're too oxidative. So I don't want to, you know, if you, if you want to make sherry, make sherry. If you want to make Jura style wines, make Jura style wines, but don't confuse things. You know, it's like I'm looking for neutral vessels, vessels that can harness the vineyard and not anything else. So we'll allege wine anything that's neutral and that breathes slow. The concrete vessels have different levels of permeability and so too the food res and 
the the clay and forest we're baking at the moment at a temperature that's so high that a lot of the pores are actually closing up the the silica starts amalgamating and i've actually got two more big ovens that's going to be fired between now and december with nine new clay and forest big big clay and forest coming out so i'm pretty amped to see them and their performance because it's new temperatures and um, new techniques and we're even putting surgical oxygen into the oven to to enhance the heat um, I love them for us they're completely neutral but sometimes they've been a bit oxidative so we've been pushing the temperatures very much and I've got a great I've got a master I don't know if you call him a potter or a craftsman he's just for me a creator of vessels you know and he's living in south africa and he's one of the best in the world you know so i met him through duncan savage duncan savage has done a lot of the pioneering work and he's at um, k point vineyard so i'm just sort of i've just come in on duncan's work and i'm just like dovetailing it into another dimension now with with this guy duncan's been at this for years with his his white his white wines so but I'm I'm doing these on forests for whites and reds, not for the fermentation of reds, but the the aging. And how old are you today? I'm, jeez, uh, I'm 42. Yeah, this is a good age. I enjoy my age. My body's still, it's it's strong still, and my mind's in a nice place. I very much enjoy where I am. And how many harvests have you done? Um, I'm. I stand to be corrected. I was actually counted out, but that was in 10. So I've done 42 harvests in 42 years, yeah. Because of the multiple hemisphere? Yes, yes. Uh, there was a stage where I had, did more harvest than what my age was. But obviously, since my 2009 return back home and not doing harvest in the northern hemisphere that number is sort of lagging behind but I'm I'm happy at the moment doing one harvest a year I did my time Evan Sadi he's done quite a bit of time at the Sadi family winery in the Swartland of South Africa and he's dovetailing with the future there as well thank you very much for being here today thank you very much for having me Evan Sadi of Sadi family winery All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself Levy Dalton Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.